Hello, and welcome to a new edition of What is Global Health? In today's podcast, we will be participating in a panel organized by GlobeMed entitled Vaccination Choice or Duty. In this podcast, Professor Colgrove, a professor at Columbia and author of the book Safe Immunity, will be discussing with Professor Arapati about the recent measles outbreak happening in California, attributed to a lack of parents um, choosing to immunize their children. They will be discussing the historic causes and the future consequences, as well as policy recommendations to how to deal with this global health crisis. So hi everyone, thank you so much for coming. Um, my name is Mariko and I'm the co-president of GlobeMed. And for those of you who don't know, um, GlobeMed is a student-run um, non-profit organization here at Columbia and we're one of the many um, chapters across the nation. And we're partnered with a non-profit, um, grassroots non-profit in Uganda called Boji. And so as much as our efforts on campus um, involve fundraising for this project, we also do many um, awareness events such as this one. And so now I will give it the mic to Christine, who is um, our executive board member. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming out through the snow. Um, so as Mariko said, my name is Christy and I'm an executive board member um, with Globe Med. Um, so today we were inspired to put this panel together due to current events. Um, so as many of you probably know, a uh, U.S. outbreak of the highly contagious measles virus has just exceeded 150 cases um, 15 years after the disease was eradicated uh, in this country. Uh, the virus has come back largely tied to an exposure at Disneyland. Um, has been blamed on the rise of under-vaccinated and unvaccinated children, um, particularly in California where personal belief exemptions allow parents um, to easily out, opt out of immunizing their kids. Um, so using kind of this as a foundation, um, today we have brought a diverse panel um, from Mailman School of Public Health as well as Columbia Med Center um, to kind of talk about a range of topics that uh, surround this public policy issue of vaccinations. Um, so first we have uh, Professor Colgrove, um, who teaches a very popular undergraduate course here at Columbia University, which I encourage everyone to take, um, called Social History of American Public Health. Um, and he is uh, very well qualified for our panel today, uh, actually having written a book um, entitled State of Immunity, The Politics of Vaccination in 20th Century America. Um, so given this, as well as kind of his back, um, vast background as a health historian, um, we are especially excited to hear um, Professor Colgrove's historical perspective. Um, we had advertised and had um, planned to also have a uh, to have Professor Aviola here. Um, however, because of the snow and because she, um, I don't think, lives in the city, she wasn't able to make it. Um, but we do have Professor Ardparty as well. Um, Professor Ardparty kind of holds a um, special place in the GlobeMed heart, um, kind of because his project um, or what he, the research he works on has a lot to do with preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV-AIDS. Um, so that obviously is not the topic of today's panel, but that is really central to um, our project. Um, so today, Professor Ardparty um, brings his uh, background um, as a pediatrician um, to, to the discussion. Uh, so just a quick um, kind of outline of how the panel is going to run today. Um, first, Professor Colgrove is going to give a little presentation. Um, and then based off that, we're going to start a Q&A, which I will um, moderate between our two panelists. And then um, at the end of the panel, we are going to open it up. So start thinking of questions now. Uh, Professor Colgrove. Okay. Do you want me to use the mic for purposes of recording? Is that um, important? It's up to you. I, we can hear the Okay. Person. Can everybody hear me without the mic? Okay, I, th I think I'd prefer to bellow. Um, <laughs> talk to the mic. 
Um, this is a great uh, title, whoever came up with it. Um, I uh, am very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been asked to talk about vaccination and opposition or resistance to vaccination. This is obviously an extremely important and timely topic for the reasons that Christy just said. Um, we have seen, in addition to the current measles outbreak, uh, numerous outbreaks of other vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. in recent years. Um, this is an issue in other economically advanced countries. For example, the U.K. and Japan have experienced major measles outbreaks in recent years due to declining rates of vaccination. And it's an issue in the developing world uh, in places like uh, Nigeria and Pakistan where uh, uh, some uh, efforts to vaccinate children have encountered very strong resistance from local communities um, and sometimes even violence directed towards vaccination teams. So uh, vaccine resistance is a, a heterogeneous phenomenon that encompasses uh, a wide range of attitudes and beliefs and practices. And I think it's important to distinguish among them because as public health professionals, we don't uh, necessarily respond to them all the same way. So what I'd like to do in my remarks is to describe the varied beliefs uh, and attitudes that underlie resistance to vaccination um, and the varied forms that resistance to vaccination can take. So I'd like to begin by making two general statements about vaccines and vaccine refusal. First, any successful vaccination program will almost inevitably become a victim of its own success. So the more a vaccine reduces prevalence of a disease, the more people lose any firsthand experience with that disease and the more they think that they are no longer at risk from it. So basically, the better a vaccine works, the more people think that they don't need it anymore. The second point I want to make is that every vaccine carries a small risk of harm. Every medical intervention carries a small risk of harm. No medical intervention is completely risk-free. Vaccines today are extremely safe. The risk from a vaccine is far, far smaller than the risk of the diseases that the vaccines prevent. Um, and vaccines do not cause most of the things that they are sometimes accused of causing, like autism, uh, which I'm going to talk more about in a moment. Um, but they do carry a risk of adverse events. Most of these are minor and transient, like pain and swelling at the injection site. Um, but rare, occasionally life-threatening adverse events do happen. So this second statement is related to the first one that I made, because as disease incidence declines, adverse events from vaccines come to seem more salient and more threatening than they would otherwise. So those are just two things to keep in mind uh, as we go through our discussion this evening. So opposition to vaccines, uh, what is sometimes referred to as anti-vaccinationism, uh, actually represents a wide spectrum of attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. A catch-all term that's starting to be used in the literature on this is vaccine hesitancy. Um, and this term encompasses everything from, at one end of the spectrum, sort of complete rejection of vaccines and active opposition uh, to, at the other end, just more general passive re resistance, um, selective or delayed vaccination, so parents who only want to give their kids some vaccines or want to space them out over a longer period in childhood. 
So at one end of the spectrum, one uh, probably the most visible uh, aspect of this phenomenon is a very vocal social movement in this country against vaccination um, in this country and in many other uh, in many other economically advanced countries. So these are organizations and individuals who engage in activism on vaccines. They engage in lobbying and other kinds of policy advocacy. They disseminate information on the internet and in other media, um, arguing that vaccines are unsafe. Uh, historically, these uh, organizations have often been founded by parents who believe that their child, uh, who had a child who was harmed uh, somehow in childhood, and they blame that on the vaccine that the child received. The most prominent group in the U.S. is called the National Vaccine Information Center. They're based down in Virginia. There's a group here in New York called New Yorkers for Vaccine Choice. Uh, there's uh, groups all over the country and all over the world. Often these groups have sort of neutral sounding names that emphasize information and choice, and that's a strategic uh, choice on their part. They are trying to present themselves as legitimate sources of information and not as kooks and cranks. It's difficult to get a handle on the numerical strength of this movement. Um, there's no good data on the number of active members that they have or, or how many people give money to them. They usually have websites, but who knows if a website is the only thing they have. Um, they make a lot of noise. They exert a lot of pressure on state legislatures. Um, and state health departments. Um, in many countries, they put pressure on national governments uh, to modify vaccination policies. So beyond the people who are members of organizations and are politically active on this issue, there's a much larger population of people who aren't politically active but have chosen not to vaccinate or to not vaccinate according to the recommendations of public health experts. So one metric that we have for assessing the magnitude of this problem is the number of parents who are claiming exemptions from school vaccination laws. So as, as Christy mentioned, every state um, has laws requiring kids to be vaccinated before they can attend school. Almost all of these laws have opt-out provisions for parents who have various either religious or philosophical reasons for not wanting to vaccinate their children. Uh, according to the CDC, the rates of exemptions nationwide have been going up in recent years from around 1.6% several years ago to around 2% now. Those don't sound like very high numbers, but remember that that is a national average that encompasses many communities with very high rates of exemptions. In some communities, something like half the kids are unvaccinated. And remember that for most infectious diseases, particularly highly contagious diseases like measles, you really have to have a very high level of coverage. Once you dip below 96, 95%, you start to see outbreaks of diseases like the measles epidemic that we are seeing now. <clears throat> the state that has the highest rate of vaccine exemptions is Oregon. Uh, with around 6%, uh, which is a number that I think is very frightening. Uh, over the last five years, most states have reported increases in their exemption rates, uh, in some cases almost doubling. So the problem does uh, seem to be getting worse. So why are people refusing vaccination? What uh, are the reasons behind vaccine hesitancy? Well, in some cases, there are 
specific theories of harm that people have become fixated on. So the most famous or infamous of these is the belief that vaccines cause autism. This uh, grows out of a discredited scientific paper that was published in 1998 in the British journal The Lancet. The story of this paper before and after is very kind of long and convoluted. The short version of the story is that the paper was fraudulent. Um, the lead author, Andrew Wakefield, was taking money from a group of parents who were suing a vaccine manufacturer at the time he was conducting the study. He did not disclose that conflict of interest. Uh, <coughs> the uh, study eventually, it turned out, involved some fabricated data. Uh, the Lancet uh, eventually retracted the paper in 2010, and, uh, and uh, that year the General Medical Council in the UK stripped Andrew Wakefield of his license to practice medicine. Uh, he uh, has since moved to Austin, Texas and opened a research institute there. Um, by that point, the damage had been done, uh, and although this theory has been thoroughly disproven, uh, by a mountain of scientific evidence, it's never really gone away. And over the years, it's sort of morphed into more general concerns about brain damage or mental retardation. So some of you may recall that in the 2012 presidential campaign, Michelle Bachman, the, one of the contenders, got some attention when she told a story of a mother she had met who uh, told a tearful story about how her daughter had developed mental retardation after being uh, vaccinated. Some of you may have seen Rand Paul on TV a couple of weeks ago, uh, interviewed on CNN, saying that he had heard of many cases, this was his phrase, I have heard many cases of children who ended up with profound mental disorders after vaccination. That was his term, profound mental disorders. So these stories get sort of mindlessly passed around, they get repeated by prominent people, and eventually they take on a life of their own. Another theory that's gotten a lot of traction in recent years is the theory that's sometimes referred to as immune system overload. So this is the idea that too many shots in infancy will somehow overwhelm a child's immune system. Jenny McCarthy, a model and leading spokesperson against vaccines, had a rally several years ago um, that had the slogan, too many, too soon. So too many vaccines, too soon. Um, and this is what is motivating some parents to try these modified or staggered vaccine schedules. There's no science behind this belief, but it has, I think it has what Stephen Colbert calls truthiness, right? It's one of these ideas that sort of sounds right, it makes sense in our gut, even though there's no evidence to support it. So beyond specific concerns about vaccine safety, another factor that is driving some vaccine hesitancy is more generalized mistrust of the pharmaceutical industry. So there is a belief among many people that big pharma is uh, just out for money, that they are over-medicating people for profit, um, they lie about the safety of their products, and unfortunately, over the past decade, there have been uh, several high-profile episodes in which pharmaceutical companies have engaged in behavior that was pretty ethically questionable, not with respect to vaccines, but with respect to other products. The most notorious case was Merck's uh, painkiller Vioxx. Uh, Vioxx uh, was pulled from the market in 2004 after it was revealed that Merck had deliberately concealed safety data about elevated risks of heart attacks. 
So Merck ended up paying many millions of dollars in lawsuits uh, over that case when um, Merck introduced its vaccine Gardasil in 2006 against HPV. There was a joke going around that according to Merck, HPV stands for help pay for Vioxx. So episodes like this have undermined public trust and made it easier for vaccine skeptics to claim that pharmaceutical products are unsafe and that greed is driving public health uh, practice. So mistrust of pharma uh, also dovetails with anti-government uh, ideology, such as the belief that government bodies like the CDC are in bed with pharma or has been corrupted by industry funding. Um, anti-government beliefs are particularly prominent in debates over compulsory vaccination laws in school. Policies to require any vaccine for school inevitably raise questions about government coercion and overreaching. Um, Rand Paul, in that recent interview uh, where he uh, talked about uh, mental problems, um, Rand Paul is of course known for his libertarian views. Uh, he said that he did not believe in school vaccination laws. Uh, he thinks vaccination should be voluntary. Um, and he said, quote, the government doesn't own children, parents own children. And he kind of got some flack for the last part of that statement. I think the idea that parents own children was a little questionable, but I'm sure that a lot of people agreed with the first part that government doesn't own children. And that's the kind of statement that I think really taps into a very deep root of libertarianism uh, that is an important part of our political culture. So uh, also related to mistrust of pharma, some people reject vaccines because they are devoted to so-called natural or holistic healing methods. There is a myth that many vaccine preventable illnesses are harmless or relatively harmless and that it's better to let the kids contract the diseases naturally and develop natural immunity to them. The reasoning behind this is a little circular. Uh, it's better because it's natural, and natural is inherently better by definition, though of course nature is full of things that are deadly and horrible. Um, because, again, to, to return to the point I made at the beginning, because few parents have ever seen a case of measles or diphtheria or pertussis, they mistakenly believe that these diseases are mild. They are not. Um, they can kill, they can cause very severe life-threatening complications uh, and permanent damage to children. So finally, in addition to these sort of social and political beliefs I've talked about, there's a common psychological factor here at work in some vaccine hesitancy, and that's a bias known as omission bias. So I don't know if there are any psych majors in the room you may be familiar with this. So omission bias is the idea that if there is a chance of harm, people would much rather have that happen by not taking an action than by taking an action. So in the context of vaccination, what this means is that if you tell a parent, if we give your child a shot, there is a one in one million chance she'll suffer a bad reaction. If we don't give the shot, there is a one in 10,000 chance she will contract a disease that will give her an equally bad reaction. Same outcome, which is the greater chance, one in a million or one in 10,000? Well, most people will choose the one in 10,000, the greater risk by not taking the action. And this has been demonstrated experimentally. So it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to get their mind around the idea that not 
taking an action is actually a form of taking an action. Um, so, uh, let me start my timer. Uh, I could say a lot more on this, actually, um, but I think I'll stop here because uh, I'm eager to hear comments from my co-panelists and I'm eager to hear questions from you all. So, thanks for your attention. So I don't think I'm as good as at bellowing, but um, so uh, just a quick follow-up. Um, I remember kind of when uh, in your class we talked about uh, vaccinations reaching back into um, late 1800s. Mm -hmm. So um, are there kind of any historical roots that we mm -hmm. can see with the anti-vaccination mm -hmm. movements that started all the way back then mm -hmm. with the ones that are kind of present today? Absolutely. So resistance to vaccines is as old as vaccines themselves. So the first ones come along in the, at the end of the, of the 18th century. And steadily throughout the 19th century, you start to see school vaccination laws being enacted and people objecting to those. In the middle of the 19th century, you start to see the first formal anti-vaccination societies founded in the UK and then in the US. And many of the claims that they made then are virtually identical to the claims that they are making now. And in fact, when you go back and you read the press coverage, you could be reading articles from last week. So it is a lot of very kind of libertarian anti-government. The state has no business telling parents how to raise their children. Um, vaccines are dangerous. Uh, my neighbor gave a vaccine to her child and she died. I mean, the, the thing historically that's interesting is that the only vaccine at, the, at that time was the smallpox vaccine and it, by today's standards, was actually highly dangerous and probably did cause a lot of the adverse events that it was accused of causing. So one can be a lot more sympathetic to the opposition back then because I think clearly um, it, was a, it had a much higher risk of adverse events. Um, but these, these threads have very, very deep roots. They go way back and it's because the concern about the vaccine is drawing on other ideas in the culture and it's tapping into sort of social and political things that people, ideas that people have about the relationship between the citizen and the state, the discretion that they are given to raise their children and what they feel about sort of distant experts telling them what to do. So, so yes, it's a, it's a very long history with a lot of kind of consistency in it. Um, so shifting to uh, Professor Arpadi, so um, of kind of what Dr. Col um, Professor Colgrove mentioned, um, what reason do you hear most that parents ask to delay or uh, not get vaccines? I don't know if you want the mic or not. Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, in the communities that I practice, which are pretty much where we are in North for the last uh, 20, a long time, <laughs> 25 years or so. I, I, it's unusual, and, and these are largely, the socio-demographic sort of, I think, is not necessarily something that you address, which I'd be curious to hear you speak to, but um, this is largely, uh, my work is largely um, among people who have public insurance, uh, generally not affluent, actually, working uh, poor at best. And there's very, I find uh, very little resistance or reluctance, the one exception being uh, the influenza vaccine, which seems to have a particularly um, poor reputation. Uh, and 
possibly in the er in the earlier years of um, introducing um, human papillomavirus uh, vaccinations, there was a question among parents about having to go down the pathway of talking about sex. Uh, but um, to be honest, uh, I don't hear much of um, reluctance. And uh, I don't know if, if I'll have a chance to come back to this, but um, to the extent that for I'm of an age of physicians where the sort of paternalistic model of you should do this because I said so, said so had, had really was a thing of the past. And I think I at least strive in my practice style to incorporate shared decision making. Um, the, the way in which the message is delivered, I think, um, speaks to some extent. I don't want to take credit for my success with immunizations, but I think there's, there's kind of an emerging picture for those that are not the ideologically convinced, but the, on the fence, I'm not so sure. I've heard some things that partly the way it's, it's delivered in terms of a, a straight-up recommendation seems to have some influence as well. And, you know, I don't know if that's... I don't want to disrupt your format, but I don't know if that's anything you want to speak about um, at all in terms of some recent data that suggests uh, rather than what would you like to do about immunizations today, but so here's what we're going to do today. Is that okay? I mean, there's still a consent part, but it's less of a deliberate sort of what's your view about this. And I should say that the pediatric practitioners in general very much like to have this kind of shared decision-making, which is much more along the line, apart from vaccines. What do you think about what should we do here? So immunizations, there may be, we may be seeing a shift in how we deliver this. And that's certainly been the case in my own practice mm -hmm. around HPV, which is, the assumption is why would any rational person not want to have these immunizations provided? And then there's room for a conversation, but much less room than we might have in other kinds of practices, so. Yeah, so, um uh, kind of an alternate line of questioning I had was about HPV, so I'm, I'd like to pick up there. Um, so you mentioned it a little bit, but can you guys speak to um, how exactly the debate around the HPV immunization differs um, kind of from what we're talking about with measles and some of the other vaccinations? I think that's a, you're a good place to start with that one. Um, so H, HPV is a, is a different vaccine for several reasons. Um, it is uh, given during adolescence. It's recommended for early adolescence. It um, protects against a disease that is sexually transmitted. It is not the only vaccine that protects against a disease that is sexually transmitted. So for a couple of decades, we've had a vaccine against hepatitis B, which is transmitted through sex and drugs. Um, and uh, it was, um, when, in, when it was introduced in 2006, it was considerably more expensive than most other recommended vaccines. So I think those three things in combination with each other caused a lot of, <coughs> of, um, of concern. And also because, and this isn't a property specific to the vaccine, but it was introduced at a time when there was already a lot of noise about vaccine safety in general. It came into a, an, an environment that people had a lot of concerns about other vaccines and those kind of rubbed off on the HPV vaccine. So the initial debates centered a lot around uh, sex and the concern that A, this would 
require parents to initiate conversations about sex with their 11, 12, 13-year-old children that they didn't feel ready to have. Um, at the, when it was first introduced, you may recall, it was only licensed for use in girls. It is now licensed for use in boys. Um, but I think there were, I'm interested to hear your views. My sense is that people were even more concerned about talking about sex with girls than they were with boys. Um, another concern was that the vaccine would um, foster promiscuity and that because teens would see themselves as being protected against a sexually transmitted disease, that they would be more likely to take risks. This is another example, I think, of truthiness. Um, and uh, this belief has actually been thoroughly disproven with subsequent empirical work. This, that belief actually was not, my sense of it was that it was out there in the media, but when I talked to people, I didn't actually find that many people who really believed that. It seemed to be kind of one of these beliefs that everybody talked about. But in fact, Sarah Abiola, who was to have been here tonight, we did a big study in 2007 through 2009 where we interviewed people in six states about their attitudes towards HPV. And I maybe one or two out of the almost 100 people that we interviewed put forth that as an actual concern. I mean, our, we interviewed the head of Focus on the Family, which is a very, uh, very conservative Christian group. He said, I don't believe this is going to make teens sexually active. And so I thought, if he doesn't believe it, who does? Um, so, so that was a concern as well. And then in particular, with respect to whether it should be required in schools, it is not casually transmissible in schools. So that sets it apart from diseases that are airborne or waterborne and takes away a potential rationale that you would use to argue for it. Um, again, it's, it's, there is precedent, so hep B is sexually transmitted disease. We require that for middle schools. We require tetanus, which is not transmissible at all. So there were other precedents, but it was sort of, I sort of thought of it as a kind of a perfect storm of the sex, the pharma profiteering, the anti-government, just all of these concerns sort of wrapped up into one little neat package. Do you want to throw in the Rick Perry in Texas? Oh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Rick Perry, I mean, you all heard about Rick Perry in Texas, right? So Rick Perry did something really bizarre, which I, only he knows why he did this. <laughs> um, he, in early 2007, signed an executive order making the vaccine mandatory. You have to understand, this is not the way that vaccines get made mandatory. That's not how, there are a couple of ways that it happens in this country, and that's not one of them. I can't, I, I am not aware of that ever being done anywhere else. Usually it's done either through a bill in the legislature or the state health commissioner has the authority under the health code to just add it to the health code. The governor doing an executive order was just bizarre, and he got huge blowback for this, and then there were accusations that his chief of staff had previously worked for Merck as a lobbyist, and so all of that fed into this, again, this idea that everybody's in bed with pharma, and it really exploded. The Texas legislature overrode it, and, um, and it really, at, at the time that happened, there were bills pending in a number of other states, and the Texas thing just got so ugly 
that basically every other state like ran away with its tail between its legs because nobody wanted to touch this anymore. And in fact, to this day, there are two jurisdictions in the U.S. that have compulsory HPV vaccination, Virginia and the District of Columbia. And the Virginia mandate is so weak that it's not even accurate to call it a mandate. It's basically an opt-in. It's more of a suggestion. So, yeah, that was one of the weirder episodes of the last 10 years. But it just kind of added into the mix, a particularly toxic mix. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So how did conversations with parents uh, generally, I guess, go uh, around HPV vaccine? Um, I think we learned that um, you could, um, you could, in some respects, uh, unpack the conversation a little bit and say, uh, particularly when you're talking about very pre-adolescent kids, that um, that this was relevant to sexual reproductive health, but particularly the cancer one was very useful. But that you didn't really necessarily have to dwell on the sex part. And that isn't to say that, um, uh, I mean, so yeah, we dodged the sex part as an effective strategy for upping immunizations. And in some respects, um, I, I would, I think most of us feel that's the right thing to do. And you can have sex and reproductive conversations for their own right, not necessarily use the HPV as the lead-in for that, since it, it, it for, 10 and 11 year old kids that may be off track, um, a distraction, and I think contributed to some some parents' anxieties. Uh, so it's, it's another, I mean, I think the approach is really, once you sort of lay out the issue around, this is actually a, a remarkable vaccine with respect to who has vaccines that can prevent a, a cervical cancer effectively, and that's sort of the selling point. Um, Right, and, and Merck was was Merck was very strategic in their marketing of it. You all remember one less, you know, the the whole campaign about I'm one less. N sexually transmitted nothing was ever in that campaign. It was all about cervical cancer, cervical cancer, cervical cancer, because they foresaw the difficulty they would have with parents. They, I mean, they're not stupid, and so they really they really um, just hammered on this point that it's a cervical cancer vaccine, and and. It didn't didn't get them very far, but they, they tried. The other the other part that's kind of emerged from my conversations with parents with mothers is um, uh, if you just sort of talk a little bit about cervical cancer screening and Pap smears and the change in practices that have actually actually have occurred now as a consequence of HPV immunizations, that opens the door to like a lot of conversations with moms like, wait, so like she won't need to get all of these pap smears and um, that, that as a young woman this mom may have undergone herself. And that's another uh, selling point. Uh, and uh, so, you know, those are some of the strategies. And the boy one, if you get into it, is a little more convoluted because HPV is really, is of, you know, um, practically of no consequence to males. Um, don't quote me on that, but by and large, it's it's not. It doesn't represent the same threat to health that for females. So it gets a little bit further away from the conversation. But most parents are comfortable knowing that their child will will be a good citizen, um, and uh, that it's a generally safe vaccine as well. So 
Um, I don't know if you want to comment on the rationale or public health policy around boys. Well, it's, it's also an interesting wrinkle yeah. here. I mean, it is it is an issue for men who have sex with men. So yes, you're absolutely know, right. Yeah. Works. So, but I don't think that a message to parents that you should vaccinate your pre-sexual boy so that when he grows up to have sex with other men, he can do it safely. It's probably not a message that you want to be uh, giving to parents. Um, you know, you can make the herd immunity argument. So the more boys are protected, the better that is for girls. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's funny that I, I left the um, men who have sex with men out because that's a group that may ha that I am immunizing in my practice, um, and uh, and also a lot of the work that I do is in the context of HIV and HPV is not at all a, a, a trivial issue if you're um, particularly if you're HIV infected and a, a gay man because uh, there's some significant consequences uh, to those individuals but mm -hmm. but but you're definitely right it's not a pathway you're going to go down with a pre-adolescent right. male and their parent yeah. I don't <laughs> so kind of um, getting a little away from HPV um, earlier we talked about how or you said that your practice you didn't really necessarily run into a lot of people who didn't want to vaccine their children at all um, but has parents ever talked about delays and kind of how do you uh, feel about the issue of rather than um, completely not vaccinating but kind of changing the timetable in which people are vaccinated um, so you know that that's actually a very challenging question for a lot of pediatricians and their practices and I don't know uh, um, in the past few days there was a there's been a conversation publicly about it. I think there was a New York Times story about it as well. Yeah, so I was uh, about to quote the article and say, uh, one of the claims that the New York Times article says um, is that uh, uh, the writer says the American Academy of Pediatrics advises doctors to keep skeptics in the fold um, lest the doctors lose their opportunity to educate, control, or persuade them. Uh, so that's from the article a little off topic of exactly what this question was. I, I think, you know, I think that that's... The general approach for um, for many the general approach, and I'll, there are some physicians that I that are exceptions to this, feel that um, I don't know if you if the notion of harm reduction is one that's kind of been brought out in any of your conversations, but that you know if you if if you that there um, that there are uh, benefits to um, a reduced a, a, a reduced a harm than trying to go for it's it's really letting not letting the perfect be the enemy of the perfect be the enemy of the good so if you can't get um, an individual to start har harmful behaviors perhaps you can intervene in a way where they at least reduce it and I think that's a sort of thinking around well I may not get them to immunize fully for during those first two years of life, but if eventually I can get them fully immunized during the first five years of life, maybe that's better than sending them away where they'll get no immunizations at all. And I think that's, that's an approach that some physicians will take. There are others that will say, I want nothing to do with you if, you, if you're going to come at me with these cockamamie uh, notions about altered vaccine schedules. And besides, it's... To be honest, immunization uh, schedules are complicated enough in a busy practice, so the idea that you're going to individualize them according to a parent's wish about separating out your diphtheria, whooping cough, and tetanus, and your pneumococcal 
during month three and during month three and a half are going to put this one in is really a, is a, is a pediatrician's nightmare. So there's some that will say, I want nothing to do with you. This is nothing short of, of neglect, of medical neglect, and so find another physician. And they're clearly, I think that's a minority view. Um, so, uh, but I, I do know such physicians and such practices. And I mean, aren't they also concerned about the presence in their waiting room of kids who are more likely to have, who be incubating measles? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, that's one issue. And I think the other is that, you know, and maybe you want to speak to this, but this notion of uh, medical neglect of a child. Um, there are some states, and I think New York is among them, where in theory you could say that withholding immunizations is a form of medical neglect. Now, the truth is, is that I don't think that... Um, there, to my knowledge, it's extremely rare that our child welfare um, will actually accept mm -hmm. that by itself. But it's sometimes the company, um, you know, if it, it may be one more thing in an otherwise neglectful environment where you can report that as well. So some physicians just feel like I'm a mandated reporter. Technically speaking, in my view, this is medical neglect. So either do it or leave the practice. I'm not going to, you know, make the report. But my personal you know, style is very uncomfortable with you're not doing this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a young, I'm an old enough physician where a number of these now vaccine-preventable illnesses, which can be quite devastating, the pneumococcal and, um, for one, and haemophilus influenza, I mean, literally, it's not that long ago, meaning during my training years, where there were wards full of children with really devastating um, forms of meningitis, very invasive bacterial infections, and some of these kids, you know, one out of 20, one out of four kids with pneumococcal or um, haemophilus influenza meningitis would lose their hearing, would lose some of their vision, would lose some of their motor function. These were permanent injuries. So I think some physicians would really do view this as quite neglectful. So, Yeah, the, the, the legal angle is interesting. I am aware of a couple of cases where child welfare has actually removed the child from the home. And there was a case in Brooklyn, so about 20 years ago in the early 90s, there was a big nationwide measles outbreak, much like the one that we're in now, centered in LA, Houston, Philadelphia, big cities. And in Brooklyn, there was a case of child welfare came and they took, uh, they took a child from the home and they, they um, you know, I mean, what, I haven't seen that happening lately, but I have seen the, I've noticed in the last couple of years, the rhetoric around this issue has gotten a lot more heated. And I'm starting to see in the press, people suggesting mm -hmm. everybody's level of, of energy seems to be getting notched up. People are suggesting a lot more draconian things than I remember seeing. So now you see um, Art Kaplan, uh, but a very prominent bioethicist, saying that doctors who don't, um, any fit medical any medical doctor who does not endorse the vaccine schedule should have his license revoked. Um, they, he wrote a, an, a commentary arguing that parents should basically be suing other parents whose child infects their child with a vaccine-preventable disease. So people are really... The, the, I, the anger on this is growing and it's leading, I mean, we're such a litigious society, it's leading people, I think, to propose legal remedies that they might not otherwise. 
So um, I do want to leave time for questions. So just um, one last question or two last questions from me. So uh, kind of zooming out um, and getting back to uh, the title of our talk today. So I guess in an ideal world, uh, uh, when kind of creating or crafting public policy, uh, how do you think we should adjudicate between kind of personal choice and civic duty? Um, that's kind of duty is a term that uh, came up, I think, in uh, one of your answers. So I know it's a hard question, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I teach a semester-long ethics course up at Mailman that's sort of about that question. I'm, I'm, I feel hard-pressed to, to, uh, to give a short answer. I mean, you, I mean, this is in a way a kind of the central public policy question for a very closely interconnected society that's very pluralistic, that has a lot of different values. Um, one sort of uh, rule that is helpful is the harm principle, which you may, some of you may have studied if you do political philosophy. So this is the idea that government can intervene in cases where they want to prevent a harm that one member does to another member of society. And that provides a kind of limiting principle and a justification for the use of, of coercive measures to, to balance when, when interests come into conflict. Um, harm is where the state can step in. Um, it's clear that being vaccinated uh, benefits others. It's not always clear that not being vaccinated harms others. It might harm others. It might not. I mean, it depends. And so actually ethicists disagree about whether a parent's refusal to be vaccinated presents a significant enough risk of harm that uh, that the state can step in. Um, I I'm generally pretty comfortable with coercion, just to, to put it to put it right on the on the table there. So that's sort of my bias. Uh, let me also um, put another um, consideration in the conversation because we're also talking about um, a child. Uh, so it's it isn't uh, you have sort of you have an unconsenting uh, the subject of the conversation is actually the child and uh, so the harms and the benefits are being Im imposed to a large degree to individuals who don't have the capacity who don't have capacity for consent and and then you get into this other set of conflicts which is uh, which I think is being, you know, was articulated this evening here already about parental rights. But we also have come um, for a, a number of hundred years now where those parental rights are by no means absolute. And, um, you know, in contrast to early English law where actually it was in, the, in some of the colonies here we had um, absolute, absolute parental rights were recognized, including putting a child to death. It was the Stubborn Child Act of the colony of Massachusetts. Uh, and so we, we've sort of, I mean, there is a history to sort of um, parental rights. And so we've kind of crossed the Rubicon and we say no parents can't do whatever they want uh, to, their, their, their rights are not absolute. And we've recognized that in all of our states. And then I don't know if there's federal statutes to that. So that, that's just kind of, this kind of back and forth between a number of conflicting values in the case of a child gets even messier. So. Yeah, that's actually a great point. And there is this uh, concept in the law called parents patriae. It's 
So this literally it translates as the parent of the country, and this is the principle that the state has not just a right, but actually a duty to intervene to protect people who are, cannot care for themselves, children and uh, people who are cognitively impaired and other categories, and this has been the subject of uh, some very significant Supreme Court decisions. There was a very famous uh, decision in 1944 in Prince v. Massachusetts um, in which the court said um, that parents basically don't have absolute rights over their children and that decision, although it was not about vaccination, the decision mentioned vaccination and said explicitly parents can't deny children vaccination if just based on either religious or philosophical beliefs. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, that is a, a very good way that you could justify this particular issue. Uh, so my final question is um, kind of more forward-looking. Uh, so uh, what policies to improve vaccination status do you find most feasible or effective? We, we were talking a little bit about this before. There's actually, uh, I think, about 10 states right now that have pieces of, of um, law that are being uh, proposed, mostly to... Um, eliminate uh, religious exemptions and I think it's been pointed out uh, that there actually is in, in, none, of, in, in none of the sort of um, uh, world religion is there a, a canonical or a doctrinal basis for refusing immunization so there's this notion that there, there barely can be any such thing as a religious exemption so that would um, leave the sort of uh, personal or philosophical exemptions. Some laws uh, want to strike that as the, the personal exemptions uh, down as well in some of the states. And then one of the, uh, now, now perhaps you want to comment on the wisdom of any of those, but then one of the things that's been suggested which takes it really out of the immediate political fray is just basically, um, uh, the paperwork them to death <laughs> notion, which is now is to sort of put a couple of barriers in for those that are not necessarily doctrinally um, opposed to immunizations, but those that are a little uneasy and there's a convenience and an ease with which you can have these personal exemptions and just putting some additional forms uh, or steps or barriers in the way. And that, that actually probably is the low-hanging fruit in terms of public policy. Yeah. Um, the other ones are a little bit more difficult to imagine at the moment for the reasons that you discuss in terms of polarization of mm -hmm. opinions. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, I think we're going to uh, end today's panel. Um, so obviously there was a lot of territory we didn't get to cover, um, global kind of how the U.S. attitudes spread, um, so maybe socioeconomics, but we hope that on campus this will be a continuing discussion, and I'm sure our panelists would be open to uh, questions uh, after by email. Um, so a huge round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, look at that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's more so, than we ever get any of I know. No, I've never gotten.